Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Father God, I'm not sure where everybody is in this room right now, spiritually, physically, emotionally. Father, undoubtedly, there are people in this room who feel like times have never been better. They feel like this is a peak moment in their life. And, and Father, we celebrate that. We felt, celebrate that they may feel close with you, that they feel your presence, your grace, and your mercy. But Father, I know that not everyone in this place is, is there right now. Father, I know that there is somebody, there are some people in this room who are hurting. Their journey is in a hard place. It's, it's maybe in a dark place. And they feel the opening line of this psalm in their bones. And Father, I pray for those who are weary travelers through their season that you would use your word to comfort them. Use your word to give them the, the peace that surpasses all understanding from the Holy Spirit. That through the power of Jesus, they would feel that this moment is not the, the end all be all of their lives. And it too is fleeting. Father, we love you and we praise you. It's in your heavenly name I pray this morning. Amen. Um, I don't know if you guys remember this. In, back in 2018, there was a story uh, during the summer that kind of dominated headlines all around the globe. It actually became this, this very big deal, even though it, it started in a very small community. But there was this boys' soccer team in Thailand that got trapped in a cave. Do any of you remember this? Does this ring a bell? Okay, they got trapped in a cave. What, what had happened was they, they had finished up soccer practice. I think one of the boys was having a birthday. And they, uh, they went, as, as many tourists do, they went to this cave system called Tam Long Nong Nan uh, in northern Thailand. And they started exploring the caves, which normally would be a fine thing to do. But the problem was that this was the beginning of monsoon season. And a rain hit while they were inside the cave system and water levels in the caves began to rise and the boys and their assistant coach who was with them, they, they, they were disoriented. They didn't know where to go. They, they actually pressed deeper into the cave system and they became trapped. They got into a place where there's no way that they could possibly swim out of the caves without scuba equipment. Ultimately, they got about four kilometers deep in this cave, which is pretty deep. I don't know how many of that is in miles, because I don't do the metric system, but that's what Wikipedia told me. You do the math, okay? <laughs> but this was deep. This was dark. This was a, a scary place. I don't know if you've ever done like the blackout tour at Carlsbad or some other cave system. It's dark. It's amazing how dark it can be. Like you flip off all the lights in your house, it never gets that dark. It is dark in this cave system. There's no light. Their food had been abandoned, and so they faced the risk of, of hunger and starvation. And in this confined space, the stale air just became staler and mustier as they breathed in the oxygen and breathed out carbon dioxide and began to actually run the risk of creating a situation where they were suffering from hypoxia, where they would suffocate 
breathing in their own, their own oxygen. Now, can you imagine the fear and despair these boys must have felt? I mean, aside from the assistant coach, everybody here is, is 16 or 11 to 16 years old. They are, they are not very old. They're young. They've never been in a situation like this. I don't think many of us have ever been, but can you imagine the fear that would be, be running through them as a group? I've never been that terrified for my, my physical life, and I bet most of you have never been in this exact sort of situation, but if we can imagine that scene, if we can kind of put ourselves mentally into this scene where we, where we try to experience and understand what those boys were suffering, then we can begin to understand the opening illustration of Psalm 130. That opening line, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And if we think about the crushing anxiety of these boys trapped in this cave for days on end, not knowing when rescue will come, if it will ever come, we might recognize that while we have never been in that exact spot, we've been somewhere emotionally or spiritually in a place where all we see is darkness. Where no matter what we look at, no matter where we turn our heads, we cannot see the way out. We feel like we are suffocating. We feel like we are at wit's end and there is no rescue. And I don't know what that situation would be for you today. I I don't know if that's a job loss. I don't know if that would have been a divorce that you had to navigate. I don't know if that's grieving death in, in the family. But we've been in that place where we feel like we have trouble breathing because the air around us feels toxic. When spiritual nourishment feels scarce, even from sources we'd normally go to, where it may feel even scarce at church, even though there are people there who love you, when, when Bible reading and prayer even seems to come up dry and you feel like you're, you're going back to the scriptures, but you're not experiencing the freedom that you need to in that moment. And it's not accidental here that the psalmist uses the word depths. Depths is a loaded term in scripture. It's not an, a, an accidental term. It's not a throwaway word. This is a word that shows up often in the concept of the sea in Hebrew writing. This is a place of drowning and suffocation. You know, when the Hebrews looked out to the ocean, they did not see like, hey, a beach. I want to go like, you know, sit in a, a chair and enjoy this. They did not see economic trade and viability as their first and foremost vision of the sea. They did not like the sea. The sea was a place of chaos. It was a place where people drowned. They wanted very little to do with the sea if they could avoid it. So when they use this word depth, this is a place that they think of as as almost hellacious. It is hellish when they use the word depths. Often Christians, we think of hell as a place that's fiery and hot, right? And we think of that because of the imagery used in the book of Revelation. We think of the, the lake of fire in which Satan and God's enemies are cast at the end of the story. The ancient Hebrew people, they associated shell, they associated death with the sea, with this chaotic, hateful, evil place to this desert people who enjoyed being firmly on dry land. The psalmist is saying he is going through hell. And in true country music fashion, he sings about it. (laughs) Now, who do you tell about these dark places? Who do you tell about these these depths of your life when you feel like you're walking through them or when you're even a little bit distance away but you need to process it still? I know it's hard at times, but you do need to let somebody in, right? You need to talk to one of the elders here at Liberty. You need to talk to your spouse. 
You need to maybe reach out to a counselor. You need to reach out to good friends who love Jesus. Maybe you need to go join, or go join an adult small group to take part in um, the, the rhythms of life that could be present there and have people around you that can just say, hey, I'm really struggling right now. I'm really suffering through something right now. Can you pray for me? Can we talk about it? We're really tempted, at least I know I am, but we're really tempted to bottle it up and to not tell anybody that we're struggling with a a hard situation or struggling with clinical depression or we're struggling with a sin issue that seems to just keep eating our lunch. And the reality is we are not made to be alone. You know, when God created Adam in the garden, the only thing he said wasn't good was the fact that he was alone. We are not made to be alone. We are made to be in community with other people. We are uh, commanded in Galatians 6, 2, to bear one another's burdens. And so we might not instinctively reach out for a lot of reasons. You know, it could be shame. It could be feeling like, hey, we're supposed to handle this ourselves. It might even be because we don't actually want to do the hard work of processing it. We just want to put our head in the sand a little bit. But we, we are called to live in life and live in community with other people. Whether that's a friend that you can call or um, you know, a family member that you can confide in, whatever it is, we need to be connected with other people. It's good for you, especially to have other believers in your life. But I do want you to notice something. For all of that, and all of that is true, but notice this. The psalmist does not say, out of the depths I cry to you, O therapist. Out of the depths I cry to you, O pastor, hear my voice. Out of the depths I cry to you, my wife. At some level, the psalmist knows that anyone he talks to, he's talking to them because they're in the same depths that he is in. That they're in the same place that he is in. Maybe they've been there in the past. Maybe they'll be there in the future. Maybe they're there in, they're with him in the moment. But they are only human too. And so while we might be able to comfort one another, while we might be able to counsel one another, while we might be able to encourage one another, at some level, we're in the same place. We can't rescue each other ultimately from the depths because that's where we are. And so what the psalmist does is he sings straight to God about the pit that he is in. He demands attention from God. Oh God, hear me. It's you I need to talk to. You're the one who needs to lend me your ears. My youngest son, Jordy, who's actually under the weather today, so that's why the rest of my family's not here, but my youngest son, Jordy, has this, this habit that is really cute right now when he's four and won't be cute for very much longer. <laughs> but whenever he wants to talk to me or my wife, we're saying, mama, 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 papa, papa, papa. And we don't immediately acknowledge him. Maybe we're talking to another kid. Maybe we're distracted with something. He'll do this thing where he like, especially if he can get a hold of our faces, if we're like sitting at a table or something like that, he'll sort of grab our face and turn it and make us look at him. <laughs> make us acknowledge him like, hey, yeah, I see you, buddy. What, what do you need? You know, and it's usually, hey, where's my car? Where's my Hot Wheels? Um, he wants our undivided attention, right? He doesn't want to share it with a screen or a book or with another, another kid. He wants our undivided attention. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's reaching up to the Lord and he's saying, listen to me. Look, I know you're way up here and I'm way down here, but listen to me. And the psalmist can only do this because he believes that God is both willing to listen Right? He believes he's not going to get slapped down for, by God for demanding the attention from God that God is willing to give him. But he also believes that the psalmist, or the psalmist also believes that God is p- 
powerful enough to address his needs. So the only reason the psalmist can do this is because he believes God is willing and powerful to care for the psalmist while the psalmist is in the depths. So I'd ask you, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe God is willing and powerful enough to care for your needs? To care about you spiritually, individually, as a, as a person? The psalmist does. This, this man trusts the Lord. He does not shut him out. He does not try to turn him off, uh, tune him out. He, he wants the Lord and he wants him pulled close. Sometimes we are tempted to shut God out. And one of the biggest reasons that we'll shut God out in our suffering in the depths is because we know that often, not always, but often our suffering is because of our actions. That's not true all the time for sure. It'd be a mistake to, to say that. It'd be a mistake to say that every time you suffer in life, it's because you did something wrong. I'm not saying that at all. Psalm 129, which you looked at last week, actually addresses suffering that comes from an external source, maybe enemies that might oppose the people of God. But Psalm 130 acknowledges that our sin can create the problem that we are experiencing at the moment. The soccer team that entered into the Tamalong Caves did so despite posted warnings not to enter the cave system during that time of year because monsoon rains were so frequent and so heavy that people can drown in those caves. They were forewarned of the risk, or at least the assistant coach made the decision to ignore them anyway and enter into a dangerous situation. Now, I'm not sure why he did that. Maybe he felt bulletproof, like it couldn't happen to him. You know, consequences of your own actions couldn't occur to him. You know, maybe he felt like, um, like he was just above it. You know, he was going to be able to navigate his way through it. He was smart enough to deal with it if it came about. Maybe he just didn't care. I'm not really sure what was going through his mind, but we take those sort of mentalities toward sin all the time. And we do things that we know God has commanded us not to do, and we fail to do things we know God has commanded us to do, feeling like, I'll be all right. I know it's bitten other people, but I'll be all right. I'm, I'm bulletproof. I can navigate my way through it. I can get through this course of action. And then we find ourselves in a situation where we are experiencing pain and suffering because of our own sinful actions, our own rebellion against God. And so we're suffering the natural consequences of that action. Now, there's a couple of ways we can process this sort of suffering. We can uh, take the sort of traditional approach at looking at suffering due to sin, the, the approach that religion has often taken. This would treat the suffering that we experience from sin as sort of karmic action. Maybe the universe or the gods is somehow punishing us for our sin. We're getting our just comeuppance and, and, and that's what we deserve and so that's what we're gonna get. And anytime we suffer, it's probably because we did something wrong even if we can't draw a one-to-one -one parallel. We've made the gods unhappy. We've made the universe unhappy. Now we're, we're paying for it. Now there is some truth in the fact that God has laws and commands and that violating them brings them to pain. But often the traditional way of dealing with sin uh, brings a lot of shame. You know, if you are the cause of all your suffering, then there's really no way to get out of it. There's no, um, there's no escape valve. There's no rescue. If you, all you've done is sort of anger the gods, 
the gods are not coming to your rescue. And conceivably, they'd be the only ones powerful enough to rescue you. If you've angered the universe, if you've angered this impersonal force, then it doesn't care about you. There's nothing it can do for you. The other way of trying to process this sort of suffering is one that our culture embraces, sort of a modern view of suffering, a more libertine view of, of suffering, which is that we would try to blame suffering on oppression and say, well, the only reason I'm suffering because I chose this course of action is because people are trying to make me suffer so they can oppress me and they can keep me down because I should be totally free, absolutely free to make this decision here and not blow my own foot off. Right? I should be able to step on whatever landmine I would like and not suffer any sort of natural consequences for it. And the fact that I am is because some system or some person is designed to, to oppress me, to keep me down. But neither of these are the Christian perspective. Neither of these ways of dealing with suffering or trying to process through suffering, even suffering caused by our own sin, is Christian. In verse 3, the psalmist acknowledges the one against whom he has sinned grievously. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the implied answer to the question is no one. No one can stand before God and claim to have clean hands. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all hurt others and we've all rebelled against God by what we've done and by what we've not done. So we cannot take the oppression line, that this justification by victimization. I'm suffering because somebody is keeping me down, therefore I ought to be able to do whatever I want. We can't do that if we're going to use the Christian perspective. But if we look at verse 4, we see what makes the Christian God different from the traditional views of religion throughout history. In verse 4, we see this. But, in, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. A more traditional concept of the divine might be, say, there is wrath that you might be feared. There is punishment that you be, may be feared. There are consequences that you may be feared. And that's where it would end. That's where the conversation would end. It would leave it at that. For sure, God has wrath towards sin. God punishes sin. There are natural consequences for sin. But what does the psalmist say really causes us to fear and tremble before God? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's what should cause us to fear God. God gives us forgiveness. He doesn't have to. He is under no obligation to forgive us. And yet, with God, with the Lord, there is forgiveness. And that forgiveness leads us, or should lead us not to a casual dismissal of God's righteousness. It shouldn't lead us to minimize his power and authority, but rather to respond in awe and worship. As we acknowledge both his righteousness and his power to forgive sin. It implies that he both uh, owns our debt because he can't forgive debt he doesn't own and that we, we find forgiveness in him. I recently heard of a church that wanted to forgive a bunch of medical debt in their state. They were, they were up in Missouri, but they wanted to help people in particular who had been afflicted by cancer and then were having a hard time paying off the debt to save their, their own lives, the lives of their family members. You know, it's this... It's this debt that you don't really choose. Like nobody plans to take on a bunch of debt to, to have chemo and to have surgery and things like that, right? It's not like they went out and just bought like a, a really nice F-150 and now they're like kind of suffering with it, right? 
It's this debt you can't pick. And they wanted to, to leave this, this pain, but they can't forgive debt that someone else owns, right? They can't just call the collector up and say, hey, just forgive that debt. What they had to do is they had to own the debt. And so they bought the debt. They negotiated with the collectors. They bought the debt on pennies on the dollar. They bought something like $45 million worth of debt for like $45,000 or 450000 I'm not really sure which. But instead of collecting on the debt that they now owned, and they could have, they could have even made some money off of the deal. They could have you know, built a new children's wing or something like that. They forgave it. And they could forgive it because they owned it. It was their debt now. These people were in the hawk to this church. But this church wasn't interested in collecting this debt. They wanted to bless these people, and so they forgave this debt. They canceled that it cost to themselves. And so we might ask, what kind of God is it that will forgive sin and cancel debt? Who truly has the authority and the kindness to do such a thing? This almost offends the traditional religious view of God. In fact, because Jesus was constantly offensive to religious people, you might remember in Mark 2 that there was a, a miracle that he performed where he healed a man who could not walk, and he made him to walk in Mark 2. But what was controversial was not that he healed this man and made him to walk. The prophets had demonstrated these sorts of signs before. It was the fact that he forgave the man's sin. His real act of authority in the moment was not restoring this man's body. That was, that was a, a, a sign to say, look, there's something special here about Jesus. But the real mark of authority was the fact that he forgave the man's sin, which he could only do because he owned that sin, because he was God. And because he has the answer to the question that the psalmist asks, who, O Lord, could stand before you? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. He alone has the power and the authority and the kindness and the mercy to take our debt upon himself, to suffer the consequences for our debt and our sin toward God, and then to forgive them. To not uh, have us owe him eternally, but to forgive and relieve us from that debt. And so Liberty, whatever debt for sin that you owe to God, Jesus has made the payment. He has the final say, and he has given you forgiveness when he takes on your debt and cancels it at the cross. Now this should inspire into us a fear of the Lord, not a, not a fear of the Lord that causes us to cower and hide, but a fear of the Lord that causes us to stand before him in awe and amazement. This God deserves our worship because he is the authority. He has the power to punish us for our sin, but instead chooses to forgive us our debt. He has come to our rescue despite the fact that we have willingly sinned against him, despite the fact that we have ignored the warnings and put ourselves in harm's way. He's chased after us. Okay, meanwhile, back at the farm, the people in the community around the Tamlong cave system, especially the head coach of the soccer team, they realize the boys are missing. Uh, they haven't turned up where they're supposed to yet, and the coach goes searching. Someone tells them they heard, though, they were going to go to the caves today. So he goes out there, and he finds stuff left at the entrance, but realizes that the rains have risen so high that they are trapped. They are trapped, and they need help. 
And he goes and gets help. And before long, up to 10,000 people, including 100 divers, are working to find the boys. And on July 2nd, after nine days locked in this cave system, trapped in this cave system, the boys are found by two British divers. Now, imagine that relief. <laughs> you don't know if rescue is ever going to come. You were trapped in darkness. You were trapped in the depths. And all of a sudden, people know where you are. And they're working to rescue you. And there's whole teams, whole armies of people crawling around the mountains now just trying to find a way to get you out of this situation and rescue you. There's a lot of relief in that, right? There's a lot of hope in that, right? But then reality sinks in. Nobody quite knows how to get the boys out of the cave. Some food and nourishment can be brought to them. Um, but the water levels are unlikely to go down during the rainy season. Breathable air is getting scarce. None of these boys have scuba training. They wouldn't know how to navigate their way back, even if they could get geared to them. Even though they've been found, there is still this painful period of waiting for final rescue to come. And at times, wondering if rescue is even possible. Like, are they going to be able to figure this situation out? Are they going to be able to get us out of this cave? If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, you know, at least in your most rational moments, that the rescuer has come. You know Jesus has come for you. You know that he has sought you. You know that he's joined you in the pit. He's joined you in the depths through his life and his death. And then he's risen above it through his resurrection and ascension. He has sought you out. He has called you his own. He's called you a people of his own possession, whom he has called out of darkness, that we might proclaim his excellencies. And yet we still feel the desperation, right? We still feel those heavy moments. We still feel that suffocation that lands on our chest when we're walking through a dark season. Why has it not been resolved? Why is rescue not complete yet? Well, a bit like the boys in the cave, our rescue comes in two stages. First is being found. Second is being brought home. We have been found by Jesus. We've been called by name. He has suffered the scars of this world along with us. And one day he will remove us permanently from the depths and allow us to dwell with him in eternity in the bright light that he casts through new creation. But in the meantime, we wait. We wait. Israel in the Psalms is waiting for their enemies to be defeated. They're waiting for national restoration. They're waiting for worship of God to finally take hold in their society. This, this society that still struggles despite having been led out of Egypt, despite having been delivered from enemies like Goliath, still struggles with idolatry and idol worship. Sometimes we feel like we're, we're waiting. We're, we're locked in this place of waiting but we wait for something better even than Israel. We wait for the kingdom of heaven to be fully manifest in our world through new creation, for God to be fully present with us, for the church, not as a nation locked in time and place, but as a new nation dwelling in permanent, perfect fellowship with God and each other. And look, the end of the story is really, really good. If you flip to your Bibles in Revelation 21 and you look at what the new Jerusalem looks like, what this, this permanent residence of God among his people looks like, you would see that it is amazing and it is good. That there's no more tears, there's no more shame, there's nothing evil or unclean in the world. But in the meantime, 
we wait and we hope in God's promises to come. But that's not easy, right? It's not easy to wait. And we don't do ourselves any favors by pretending it's easy to wait. We should be honest with ourselves. It takes discipline, it takes courage, it takes trust in the Lord, and it takes power that we can't bring to bear in and of ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us to wait. And we don't like to wait, do we? We're Americans in the 21st century. We don't wait for anything if we can avoid it, right? We don't wait for the next episode of a show to come on. We binge stream the show. We don't wait for, we don't wait in the Chick-fil-A line. We place our order ahead of time, right? We don't like to wait. We want instant results. And yet God moves at his own speed. He moves at his own pace and his own timing. Jesus will return in his father's time. We don't know when that time is, this side of eternity. And anybody who tells you they do is trying to sell you something. But we do cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. We join the spirit and the bride when we cry that. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. We eagerly await for the day when he comes back to us. In fact, we should be prepared for the day when Jesus comes back to us. And when I say that, I don't mean like you need to go buy buckets of freeze-dried potatoes or something like that, right? I mean keeping a vigilant life, a watch on our life and our conduct and our doctrine. Working so that we would look more and more like Jesus when he comes back if he comes back in our lifetimes. Being prepared as servants waiting for their master, not asleep on the farm, but when he returns, doing the work that he has given us to work, faithfully pursuing, making disciples in Dalhart and among the nations. I love that vision statement, by the way. It's so big, it's global. We should be about that work when he returns and not asleep at the wheel. The psalmist uses the illustration of a watchman on the city walls. He writes, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. I don't know if you've ever uh, had sort of a midnight shift anywhere. I, uh, I used to work for Hastings. Do you remember Hastings? Rest in peace, Hastings, man. <laughs> You could go and buy like, you know, video games and comic books and movies and a vinyl record all in the same place. I worked for Hastings. It was a weird, weird couple of years. But every once in a while, we had to have the floors waxed. And so somebody would have to stay all night while the crew came in, these contractors came in and waxed the floors. And I don't, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I've done anything more boring in my life then literally watch the floors get waxed. I would have rather waxed the floors. Like it would have, that would have been more exciting. And I, I just, I remember just like, I want the sun to come up. I want the day to hit. I want to go home. I want to go to my own bed. I'm tired. I'm wiped out. I'm exhausted. I probably worked a night shift before I did this. The light eventually came. The sun eventually came up. The light I'd been waiting for was there and with it, relief. And I got to go home. That's the anticipation with which we wait for the Lord. For the team in the cave, final rescue eventually came for them. Uh, after 18 days in the cave system, 
an operation involving, I said, over 10,000 people, finally came up with a solution to pull the boys to safety. And the way they did this was one by one, they were going to pull the boys out. So they pumped a lot of water out of the cave system. They were trying to beat the rains. They're pumping a ton of water out. And divers brought oxygen tanks to the boys along with some wetsuits. And then none of the boys would have the training, the scuba training to get themselves out. And so what they did was they sedated the boys, actually put them to sleep. So the boys have almost no agency whatsoever in their rescue at all. They're not helping paddle. They're not helping swim. They're doing none of the work. And then these boys are towed almost four kilometers back, either through inky black water or they're dragged, carried, and ziplined through dry portions of the cave system to safety where they were finally able to see the sunlight after 18 days. It's crazy. One diver died in the rescue attempt. Uh, he died of asphyxiation. Another died a year later from a, a lung infection that he incurred. But every single one of the boys in the assistant coach were rescued. Liberty, as deep as you feel in the depths, remember this. You have been found by Jesus. He knows your name. He has called you to him. And he has promised that he will bring you into the daylight. I know that hasn't happened yet, but he has promised it. And he is faithful to his promises. The psalmist closes his song with this, this encouragement to the people of God told this truth close to their hearts to, to sing it as a people when they prepare to worship. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Liberty, I don't know all of your stories. I don't get to pastor you personally. So I can't speak to an individual situation, but I do know that I know there's going to be people in this room who feel like you are in the depths, who feel like you're being swallowed up. And I want you to know that our God is faithful. He has promised to bring you light. He is willing to rescue you and to hear your cries. And he's powerful enough to do something about it. Trust him. Rest in his promise. This one season may end. He may bring you relief in the short term, but he will absolutely bring us there eternally when Jesus returns and gives us a new creation, which according to John in the book of Revelation is filled with brightness, daylight, not from the sun, but from God himself dwelling among the people whom he has redeemed. That is our future. That is our hope if we are in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this hope that we have in Jesus. I thank you that we can cry out from the depths to you and that though sometimes our suffering and pain is self-inflicted, you still are gracious to us. You still are merciful to us. You still wait to rescue us and to bring us into your family that you have forgiven through Christ the debt of our sin against you. And because of that, we have hope, not in ourselves, not in short-term solutions, not in other people, but eternal hope in you and in your faithfulness. Father, I pray for those in this room who might be experiencing a season like that right now or who may go through a season like that soon. 
be a comforter to them. Remind them of their hope. Use your word, use other Christians, use prayer. Remind them of that hope. Give them the peace that surpasses all understanding through the Holy Spirit. Father, we love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray this morning. Amen. With me, stand together and sing, please.